ahead, you may be seated. Uh, during this Advent season, we have uh, begun a brief um, series of sermons. Uh, it'll be seven in all from the book of Isaiah, looking at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've actually chosen seven passages out of Isaiah that are sung in Handel's Messiah. Uh, last week, uh, together, we looked at Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Uh, this week is going to be Isaiah 40 and verses 3 through 5. And then we'll continue our look uh, through uh, the book of Isaiah this evening when Pastor Collins preaches uh, to us uh, tonight. But again, to this morning's passage is Isaiah chapter 40 and verses uh, 3 through 5. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Let's hear now God's uh, word. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This ends this reading in God's uh, word. Let's look to the Lord uh, together in prayer. O Lord, our God, our hearts are gladdened when we think again of this glorious truth that you have come near to us in Jesus Christ, that you have sent the Deliverer long promised, and that he has come and accomplished the salvation from our sins. We pray, O Lord, our God, that today as we Consider these words out of the prophet Isaiah, words which were spoken some 700 years before the birth of our Savior. O Lord, our God, that our minds would be instructed and our hearts would rejoice, and Lord, that we would be challenged as well. As we consider these things, draw near to us, we pray, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, have you ever been in trouble and needed somebody to help you? I think the answer for all of us would be yes. We can think of lots of times that that has happened. Uh, perhaps one time you were stranded on the side of the road. You were out of gas. You had no way to make it to a gas station. And what a welcome sight it was seeing a family member or a friend bringing to you that gas can so you can no longer be stranded. Or perhaps for you, it was some time that you had a sudden uh, medical emergency and an ambulance came just in time, got you to the hospital where you received the help uh, that you needed. Perhaps for others of you, you were going through a period of crisis, a time of distress or even despair. You felt alone and in danger and a friend came and sat with you and talked with you comforted you 
And you are greatly helped by what that person had to offer. All of us have at various times in our lives, in things both small and great, been rescued by others at just the right time. And how grateful we have been for that. Well, the people of Israel were facing here a crisis of some magnitude. Uh, The prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah was uh, declaring to them that because of their sin that they were going to face judgment. There was uh, a looming exile that was going to take place uh, some years in the future, uh, an exile to Babylon as a kind of chastisement for their sin. And the question came, well, who is going to deliver God's people Israel in this time of crisis? But in reality, the problem ran even deeper than that. Not only did they need to be delivered eventually from exile in Babylon and returned from the land, but ultimately what they needed was one who would deliver them from the deeper problem of their sin. One who would deliver them from the wrath of God that was due to them for their sin. One who would ultimately reconcile them to God. Who who would bring the comfort that was promised in verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah chapter 40? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A comfort that ultimately would issue from the forgiveness of their sins. And the answer is that the only one who can bring this kind of help A help that is greater than any other is none other than the Lord himself. And that's really what this passage promises. As the prophet Isaiah looks ahead into the future and delivers to them the word of the Lord, he promises to them that it will be none other than the Lord himself who will come to deliver his people. So I want us to consider this passage in two different headings today. First of all, we are going to consider a divine visitation that the Lord will come. A divine visitation. The Lord will come. And then secondly, I want us to consider a heart preparation. How we receive Him. A heart preparation. How we receive Him. Because this passage speaks to us indeed of the coming of the Lord. But it speaks to us as well of having a way prepared for him in his saving work. A divine visitation followed by a heart preparation. Well, first of all, out of our passage today, we see here a divine visitation. As we said, the ultimate problem that the people of God had in Isaiah's day, the ultimate problem that any of us have is a problem that can only be met by the Lord himself. And that's what is promised beautifully in this passage. Uh, You'll notice verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the language is actually the language of a royal visitor, a king who resides at some distance, now coming near to his people to visit them. 
But this king who is coming to visit the people of Israel is a king who is none other than the Lord himself. It is the way of the Lord drawing near to his people. It's a highway for our God to come and to visit. And verse 5 then picks up on this uh, even further. Speaking of the Lord's coming, it then says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. That word glory there is a word which literally means weight or heaviness. Uh, It's the idea of uh, the weightiness, the uh, God being uh, substantial, and it's as if God in all of his glory, in all of his greatness, in all of his power, in all of his godhood, this Lord is now going to be revealed in the sight of his people. And it says, all flesh, that is, all flesh, all of humanity in its weakness and in its dependence and in its need is going to see together this glory of the Lord coming and being uh, revealed. All of this is reminiscent of what's spoken of in the 24th Psalm as well in those uh, final verses. We're going to be singing a rendition of this 24th Psalm as our final hymn today. But uh, Psalm 24, uh, beginning at verse 7, says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? That the King of glory may come in. Well, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. And so Isaiah 40, as well as Psalm 24, gives us uh, this wonderful promise of the King of glory, the Lord himself, the Lord of armies, coming and meeting with his people. The glory of the Lord displayed among his people. Well, the question is, isn't it, when does this happen? How does the Lord do this? How is God's glory revealed among His people? When does the Lord visit His people in this way? And the answer is very clearly that what this is ultimately speaking about here is what happens in the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The incarnation is fundamentally God, the Lord, the King, coming and drawing near to His people. It is the glory of God displayed. Well, how is the glory of God displayed in the incarnation? And I want to just mention two ways in which it is. This glory of God is, first of all, displayed in the very person of Jesus Christ. For the very person of Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That is, the glory of God is displayed in Christ himself. Isn't that what John 1.14 says? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, what? We beheld his 
glory. What glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It was the glory of the eternal God, the glory of the eternal Son who dwelt in the bosom of the Father. This glory is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why a doctrine, this is why doctrine is so important, friends. We believe that the Bible teaches what is sometimes called, theologians call it, the hypostatic union. And that's a big word which simply means that Jesus is fully God and fully man, two natures in a single person, the Lord Jesus. And why that is so important is it teaches all that God is, Jesus is. God, he is fully God, 100% God, not partially God and partially man, so that what we have is some kind of hybrid creature, a God-man, some of each, but not fully either. But rather, in Jesus Christ, we have one who is fully man in all the ways that you and I are human, except for sin. But in every bit of our humanity, Christ shares. But at the same time, he is fully and completely God. All that God is, Christ is as well. A full God nature. And so the glory of God in all of its fullness, in all of His power, in all of His might, in all of His sovereignty, a glory that is to be worshipped and adored and praised is found in our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. The hymn says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Imagine that in the baby in Jerusalem's or in, in Bethlehem's manger. In that baby, that Jesus is at the same time God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, fully and completely God. God Himself has become one of us. That's the truth of the Incarnation. And so the glory of God is revealed in the very person of Christ Himself. But the second way that the glory of God is revealed in the Incarnation is in the works of Christ. That is, in what Christ came to do, there He does the very works of God Himself. And so, as Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem's manger and then uh, uh, grows up full of wisdom and stature and then He enters into His public ministry, what we see displayed in His life are not simply the works of a mere man, but rather the works of the God-man, the one who is God Himself. And so he speaks words of authority and of truth, unlike those that any mere man has ever spoken. The Lord Jesus controlled the winds and the waves. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. He knew the thoughts and intent of men's hearts. 
Jesus Christ did what no mere man could do. He bore the sin of all of His people on the cross of Calvary. And then on that third day, He was raised from the dead as sovereign King and Lord, never to die again. It is this Jesus, this God-man, who now rules from a position of supreme kingship. And because of Jesus' work, uh, you and I, who once were dead in our sin and transgression, are now given new life. Our sins are forgiven. We are made sons of God. And this Lord Jesus is going to restore all creation. And when He comes again, He's going to establish this eternal, consummated kingdom which is never going to pass away. You see, the works that Jesus does are the works of God Himself. And so in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and all that then flows from His ministry, in those things is the glory of God revealed. And it's revealed, as our passage says, in the sight of all flesh. These things were not done in a corner. This is not merely some hidden mystery that only... Uh, the initiated can hear about. Rather, this was truth that was this. This was a work that was done publicly in history, and it is a truth that is now to be proclaimed throughout all of the world. That God Himself, in the person of Christ, has come and visited His people. It was certain that it was going to happen. We're told the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And just as surely as the Lord spoke that it would happen, it has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is this truth, dear friends, this Christmas season, it is this truth that God Himself has come and visited His people that will be heard time and time again. In the songs that we sing, joy to the world, the Lord, is come. Where we sing, uh, all praise to you, eternal Lord, clothed in our human flesh and blood. Or we sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Where we sing, God of God, light of light, lo, He abhors not, The virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. Where we sing, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. What glorious words these are. And can I encourage you in this Christmas season, as it so often is a season full of uh, gift-giving and uh, gatherings with family and friends and busyness and schedules that are full and doing one thing the next and Christmas music perhaps playing in the background, can I encourage you to stop and to hear what that Christmas music is saying and to meditate upon these scriptures that speak to us of the glorious birth of our Savior. And can I encourage you in the midst of it all, to make this season chiefly one in which you rejoice that the Lord has come 
and visited his needy people. And just as, as I said earlier, just as so many of us have been helped at different times of need by different people in different situations, the greatest need that you have is that you would be saved from your sins, and it's only God who can do that, and he has done it through Jesus Christ, God himself, with us, our Savior. A divine visitation. But now secondly, in our passage today, I want us to consider a heart preparation. A heart preparation. That is, how do we receive this divine king who has been sent? If the Lord is visiting his people, his people need to be prepared for his coming. And that's again the language of our passage. Uh, the passage speaks of a kind of preparation for the Lord's visitation. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then it goes on to speak of how this should happen. Every valley lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And, and the imagery, again, if you think of that, of that king, that royal visitor coming from a faraway place to visit his people, it was said back in the ancient Near East that sometimes kings, in order to display their splendor, would send out a herald in front of them and that herald would announce that the king is going to come. And then it was the job of all the local peoples, as it were, to make sure that the road was clear and that it was straight. And the image here is that of a, of a preparation of a, of a straight road. Uh, but it's even in more exalted language. It's even, we're told, the mountains which should come down and make a level path. The, the valleys should come up and make a straight path uh, uh, for, for the Lord. That Where the ground is uneven, it, it needs to be level. The rough places like a plain. I mean, think about it in your mind of, of, of almost like a highway construction, right? An interstate that is constructed in an area with lots of mountains and plains and Hills, I think it's such a fascinating thing when you can look at terrain that is so rough and bumpy and yet they're able through tunnels and building other areas up and all of that creating a road that is relatively straight and flat and level that cars can travel upon. And that's the idea that is given here. It's the creation of a straight path for the king uh, to visit. Stones removed, holes filled, obstructions cleared away, a smooth road prepared. Well, this is what is to happen for this king. There is to be a preparation for it. Well, again, if the visitation of this king is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ coming, who is the messenger to prepare people for Christ's coming? Who is this speaking about here? Well, I think most of us in this room probably know that we've run into these verses somewhere else in the Bible. And actually, you have four different places in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, and in Mark, and in Luke, and in John, all four Gospels, these verses are quoted 
to speak about the ministry of John the Baptist. That the Lord sent a messenger ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after 400 years of silence, where there was no word from the Lord after the book of Malachi, suddenly the Lord sends once again a prophet to his people, and this prophet's job was to prepare a straight path for the coming of the Lord. He announced the Lord's uh, coming. And so let me just read one of those passages, Luke chapter 3, and verses 3 through 6. We're told that John the Baptist, uh, that the word of God, verse 2, came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so there was a message that was given to the people that they might be prepared for the Lord's coming. Well, how are these people to be prepared? Well, ultimately, John's message was a message of repentance. That was his message. It was a message of repentance. He preached repentance. Uh, uh, repentance. Uh, 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 he, had, he had a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Both John and Jesus said that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe uh, the gospel. And so it speaks here of in the wilderness, this way of the Lord is to be prepared. Now the wilderness here uh, certainly represents the literal location of John's ministry. He ministered in the wilderness. But more fundamentally, it really represents the moral condition of this world. Using the language of wilderness, it's saying that this world and the human hearts that are in this world are a kind of barren wilderness. It was that way in Isaiah's day. That's why the nation of Judah was going to be carried into exile. And it was certainly that way as well before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think about it. The Gentiles were engaged in idolatry and immorality of all kinds. But the Jews themselves, God's uh, people, uh, were, were caught up in a kind of uh, formalism and religious hypocrisy. And dear friends, is it not that way in our day as well that this world in itself is a kind of barren wilderness? And it's saying though, in this wilderness of the wickedness of the human heart, prepare the way of the Lord. And how do you do that? Well, it is indeed by repentance. John's message was a message of repentance. And it's important for us as we think about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to realize that as we receive Christ and all of his saving work, that it needs in our own hearts 
to be met with an attitude, a posture of repentance. Well, you say, what is repentance? Our catechism so helpfully answers this. Repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of that sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Great definition. It's a mouthful. Okay? But let's kind of break it down a little bit. What does it mean to repent? And again, this is so important because if we are to be those who benefit from this saving, delivering work of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist says, Jesus says, Isaiah the prophet says, we are to prepare a way for him by the means of repentance. That's how. So what is repentance? Sinclair Ferguson very helpfully says, it consists in three different things fundamentally. What is true repentance? True repentance, first of all, is a new attitude towards sin. A new attitude towards sin. That is, that we acknowledge not just sin out there, but the sin that we commit to be sin and contrary to God. That we sorrow over that sin. That that sin grieves us in the heart that we confess that sin to the Lord and then we seek with God's help to break from that sin in a path of new obedience. And so it is a new view or new attitude toward sin. In acknowledgement, sorrow, confession, and breaking with that sin. But the second thing in which it consists is a new attitude toward the self. A new attitude toward ourselves. That is, instead of viewing ourselves as fundamentally okay, you know, I'm doing pretty good in this world, I'm making it all right, but rather in humility we realize that we are sinners. And that what we desperately need is the mercy of God. And so it puts ourselves in a posture of dependence and a seeking after God. That's our new view of ourselves. You think of that prodigal son who had gone away in the far country, spoiling all of the belongings that he, that he had been given. And what does it tell us in Luke chapter 15? That at some point he came to himself and he said, you know, what have I done? And that's what repentance is. It's a kind of coming to ourselves and realizing I'm not so good. I'm not okay, after all, as a sinner. A new attitude towards sin, a new attitude toward ourselves. Thirdly, what is repentance? A new attitude toward God. A new attitude toward God. And suddenly, for the one who is a repentant sinner, they realize that God would be fully just in his condemning wrath towards me. But in this new view of God, we also realize that this God is a God of abundant grace and pardon. And so we take our sin to him. We flee to him, asking him for his mercy. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow, David says. 
The idea is, is that we need that cleansing which He can provide. And so you see, when we speak about repentance, repentance is more than merely feeling regret over some things that we've done in the past. It is more than merely being sad about the consequences of our sin and the trouble that our sin has gotten us into. But rather, a repentant heart is one where you feel sin to be what it is, sin. You acknowledge it, grieve over it, confess it, seek to break from it. You have a new view of the self. And you have a new view of God, seeking mercy from Him. That is what repentance is. And friends, in the Bible, repentance and faith always go together. They're like flip sides of the same coin. That to truly believe in Christ is to feel yourself a sinner in need of Christ. And so true faith always involves repentance, just like true repentance, a true fleeing from sin always involves real faith in Jesus Christ that He can save. And so John the Baptist, when he looked at people and he was saying, now the kingdom of God is going to come in the person of Jesus Christ, how can you receive the benefits of this kingdom? How can Christ be your Savior and your Lord? How can He deliver you from the penalty that you deserve? And John said, prepare that way by the way of repentance. Repentance. A heart of repentance to the Lord. And so it must be for us as well. Repentance is absolutely essential. It is necessary. Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5, the Lord Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, God commands all men, all people, really everywhere to repent. In our own Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, paragraph 3, I think encapsulates this idea of the necessity of repentance when it says this, that repentance is of such necessity to all sinners that none may, accept, may expect pardon without it. Now, in speaking of the necessity of repentance to receive the Lord. Understand me clearly. I am not saying that repentance is some kind of work which makes us worthy of the Lord's favor. It isn't something, first of all, that we do that then merits the favor of God. If I just repent enough and in this way and in that way, then I deserve the Lord's favor. No, not at all. But rather, it is from the nature of repentance itself. What is repentance? but it is a fleeing from sin. And what does Jesus Christ do? He saves us from our sin. He doesn't leave us in it. He's the Christ who saves us from this sin. And so, to truly look in faith to the Savior, I must see my sin for what it is and confess it to Him and seek by His grace to flee from this sin, receiving at the same time this whole Christ as an all-sufficient Savior for all of my needs. What a wonderful word this is. 
Let me just apply this point under a couple of ways. This uh, heart preparation that you and I need for Jesus Christ. And first of all, I just want to speak a word of warning to those who may be presumptuous. A word of warning to those who may be uh, presumptuous. You might say, well, what does presumptuous mean? We'll just keep listening, okay? There are some people, and maybe some of you are one of them, who thinks, you know, I believe in God, meaning up here in your head, if someone were to ask you, do you think that God exists? You'd say, yes, I, I do. And then somebody might say, well, do you believe uh, that the things that the Bible records about the Christmas story really happened, that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ? And you would say, yes, I believe all of that to be true, what the Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us about the birth and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that is true. Okay, so you would say, I believe in God. I believe in what happened in Christmas. You'll even say, I'll sing these Christmas carols about what Jesus did, but you are living in unrepentant sin. There are things in your life that you are saying, I'm going to have that be the way that I want it to be, and the Lord has no right to that part of my life. Maybe for some of you, it's the way that you speak, the kind of language that you use. For others of you, it may be that your heart is ultimately set, your, your greatest desires, your heart is ultimately set more than anything else on kind of fulfilling the American dream, riches, wealth, possessions, really what you want more than anything. For others of you, it is sexual immorality. That there are aspects of, uh, of your life where you're saying, I'm going to keep doing this no matter what the Lord says. And the Bible makes clear, dear friends, that we cannot expect, on the one hand, to be unrepentant of sin, and on the other hand, have the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our God. Now, this doesn't mean that we repent perfectly or that we don't struggle with sin as believers. We do. And sometimes we repent of a sin to fall back into it again. And that happens in the life of a true believer. Absolutely. But the true believer comes sincerely to the Lord and says, Lord, this is sin. And I desire, I confess it before you, would you please forgive me this sin and by your grace help me to turn from it. Repent, John the Baptist says. Make straight this path for the Lord. It is in the way of repentance that we have Christ also then to be our Savior. And so can I call upon you today, if you are one who is presumptuous, meaning that what I described was you. You think that in one sense you are okay with the Lord while still engaged wholeheartedly 
in this sin, unrepentant, can I call upon you today to repent? Repent. And might this Christmas season be a wonderful season for you as you turn your back on these sins and confess them to the Lord and realize the beauty of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. And this leads me just to another application. And here, I want to give, even as I've given a word of warning to those who are presumptuous, I want to give as well a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement to the godly. And that is, indeed, as this passage calls us to the task of repentance, sometimes we are going to struggle in it. Sometimes we're going to have to repent even of our repentance. But the word here is an encouragement because it's also the promise, ultimately, of the Lord's help. This is a command that we find in Isaiah 3 through 5, but embedded in this command is a kind of promise that even as this way of the Lord is going to be prepared, there is going to be a way that is made straight in the desert, a highway for our God. And ultimately, the repentance that you and I are called unto is the very repentance that the Lord helps us in. One of the most beautiful verses is Acts 11 and verse 18, I think, that says, God also hath granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Dear Christian, you can find the Lord's help even in your repenting. What a wonderful thing it is. The Lord will help you. He will give grace. What God commands, He also through Jesus Christ provides. And dear friends, the work of repentance, while it is in many ways a hard work, it is ultimately a joyful work. And can I say that to all of you? One thing that the devil wants to make you think is that when you are called to confess sin and to flee sin, that what you are being called to is one of the most miserable, one of the worst things in all of the world that you'll ever have to do. Oh, look how much you have to give up for Jesus Christ. It's far too much. He's keeping you from happiness. He's keeping you from joy. Repentance is such a hard, toilsome labor, laboring work. That's what, that's what the devil says to us. But friends, it is just the opposite. It is just the opposite. That in the way of true repentance comes the beauty of receiving with a heart full of faith the Lord Jesus in all of His glory and all of His beauty and all of His saving sufficiency. And so you and I are never, ever the losers in repentance. Anything that you are called to give up that is sin was not good for you to begin with. And in, and in repenting of our sin, we have then the beauty of a full and glorious, wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And might we remember that? That ultimately this message of Christmas is good news. Is there a call to repentance? Yes. But there's a call to repentance because... Our Savior, our God, the Lord has come and has visited His people. The glory of the Lord is revealed in the sight of all flesh. And that glory of the Lord, dear sinner, is for you. It's for you.
Rejoice in that. And might the Lord help us to repent of sin and rejoice in such a glorious Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, this message that we're given, um, message of uh, preparing the way for the Lord, of straight paths for our God. And Lord, we pray that we would indeed receive this amazing work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would receive it with repentance, by faith. And Lord, we pray that you, Lord Jesus, in all the sufficiency of your saving work, would take up residence in our heart and in our life. O Lord, our God, do this. We thank you that you have come and have delivered your needy people. We pray this in Jesus' name.